Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with fascinating people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Dr. Mario Grijalva, Director of the Infectious and Tropical Disease Institute at Ohio University, and Dr. Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication. We talk about the fight against the deadly Chagas disease in Ecuador and in the United States, and about the concept of community-engaged research and service learning at universities. Talk about this disease, would you please, and, and define it for us? Chagas disease is caused by a parasite called uh, Trypanosoma cruzi and affects about seven to eight million people worldwide. The disease is uh, transmitted by a number of ways. The most common way is via an insect called the kissing bug in English uh, that is present all the way from the United States to Argentina. Now the parasite, once it gets into the body, it hides for a very long time. And after five to 20 years, between 30 and 40% of the people infected develop life-threatening complications that include severe damage to the heart and other organs that greatly reduces their quality of life. This also uh, is not just a Latin American disease. Uh, it has been transmitted into the United States, correct? Yes. Um, the processes of uh, immigration have really um, broaden the geographical distribution of Chagas disease. It is estimated that about 300,000 people um, are infected with Trypanosoma cruzi in the United States, and several hundred thousands of people are infected in uh, Europe and uh, Japan. Uh, there are reports of infections even in Australia, New Zealand, and other places. And even though this delays for uh, up to 25 years or, or, or so, uh, it produces how many deaths a, a year? Do you have figures on that? The estimates vary, but uh, it is thought that about 20,000 people a year die of the disease. And what is really dramatic about this um, disease is that it is also transmitted from the mother to the fetus during pregnancy. So if you think about 8 million people infected, how many of those are uh, mothers uh, in a reproductive age? And it is, uh, again, estimated that about 15,000 children are born every year 
uh, with congenital Chagas disease. And they then would have the same gestation period of the, of the parasite uh, to cause them damage? Uh, yes, yes. And uh, scientifically, we don't know yet what makes some people get really sick and other people uh, have uh, no apparent symptoms through their lives. But the incubation period is, uh, is really problematic because the access to healthcare in most of the areas where this disease is present is lacking. So you don't have the capacity for easy diagnosis. And uh, the current uh, statistics point that about 90% of those that are infected with Chagas disease uh, have not been diagnosed. And only 1% of the people infected have been treated. And that is alarming for a disease that is this serious. What is a treatment for Chagas disease? The treatment uh, right now, the available treatment uh, is uh, uh, drugs. There, is, uh, there are two medicines in the market, uh, but these medicines require a long treatment between 30 and 60 days treatment, and they are quite uh, complicated. Um, there are a lot of side effects and there are a lot of uh, people that must stop the treatment, particularly adults, don't tolerate the treatment really well. Now, if you treat an infant that was born with congenital Chagas disease, the chance of success of that treatment is 100%. It's, it's wonderful. But in order to do that, you need to know that the, that the child has it, right? Which will mean that the mother needs to be diagnosed. So most people are not diagnosed. That is not happening. Is the diagnosis difficult? The diagnosis is, is difficult. At the moment, it requires two independent tests that confirm the, what is called the seropositivity of that your uh, uh, blood has antibodies against these, uh, this parasite. And um, the test must be done in a medium complexity laboratory. That means that it needs to have the right equipment and it needs to have a technician with the right training to do the testing, right, to run the assays. And that is just not available in most places. In many places, would I be correct that the population uh, infected is a rural population uh, and therefore access to medical care is not always handy? That is correct. Most of the population affected lives in uh, rural or peri-urban areas in uh, Latin America. And these includes uh, uh, people that live in, in remote locations or people that live in really uh, substandard conditions. Um, one of the issues, and that is what we're trying to tackle, is the issue of prevention. If people live in uh, a type of environment that allows these kissing bugs to uh, feed on them constantly, they are at high risk of uh, contracting the disease. So if you think about the um, mud huts that are present in most rural areas of Latin America, that is where this uh, bug 
um, survives and thrives. Or if you think about the slums of the big cities uh, in certain, uh, certain places. Um, that is uh, uh, why Chagas disease is really associated with the disease of poverty, right? It's, it's one of the quintessential diseases of poverty because it affects those that are most vulnerable, those that live in precarious living conditions, uh, those that cannot help themselves. And so it happens that this population is normally uh, underserved in many different ways. So access to healthcare, you know, might be lacking. Access to education might be lacking. Lack of good uh, transportation of access roads uh, to their uh, places. Um, lack of political representation lack of economic opportunities. So all of those um, factors come together and create like a, a brewing stew of the perfect conditions for Chagas disease and many other things, right? Chagas disease right. Is, is sort of the manifestation of this situation. So you've been a scientist all your professional life, and you, you deal with science and, and medicine and prevention and treatment, uh, but it seems that to attack this disease, you've had to broaden your scope beyond just scientific means. Uh, yes, uh, and, and it has been a wonderful journey. My training at uh, Ohio University was in molecular biology immunology and parasitology, right? So that is uh, basic science. And, and But while studying and getting training on those uh, aspects, I uh, stumbled into the social issues related uh, to Chagas disease. For example, Trypanosoma cruzi is transmitted via the blood supply. If a person that is infected donates blood and that blood is not tested, uh, the components that are uh, produce from that blood can transmit the parasite to the recipient. The same with the uh, organ transplants, right? So um, one of my um, my uh, contributions, I guess, was to realize that this was going on uh, in Ecuador, uh, my home country, and uh, the blood wasn't uh, wasn't being tested adequately, right? So that led to a whole process of reformulation of the blood banking system in the country and a transformation from a, a sort of a, a handcrafted type of thing to what it should be, which is uh, testing with high quality control. And so, you know, it's been a long road, but that program keeps on going. But uh, through that process, I also started learning that the application of the knowledge in the communities was the key to make a real change. So the information that as researchers we were obtaining uh, then started to be uh, being useful for uh, preventing the disease. And, uh, and that, that is it's just a wonderful, wonderful uh, personal story that you know, makes me happy when I look back. And, and, um, uh, and not only perhaps because of this um, opportunity to have scientific discoveries become real actions, 
but also because in the process, I have been fortunate to been able to pass this knowledge to hundreds of students that have participated in this program, uh, in this research. Now, you're also uh, looking at housing as a major factor here. And uh, I doubt when you uh, started this journey that you thought you would be in home construction, but uh, it's it's my understanding that you've uh, constructed uh, six or so homes so far? Uh, yes. So the biology of the disease informed the need to change the living environments. Because one of the th things that uh, my group discovered was that the kissing bugs that transmit the parasite in this region of uh, southern Ecuador were not only in the houses, but are, were also in the trees, with the squirrels, with the possums, with the rats, with birds. And so if you go to a house and use the traditional insect control of just putting insecticide, that protected the family for only a very short period of time. Within three months, you started to see a reinvasion by these insects of the homes. And but one year is like you did nothing, right? Now, consider our previous conversation where these communities and these houses have uh, difficulties on access roads of getting there. So in order to visit every house that is susceptible every six months of every year with a team of insect sprayers or, or people you know that does right. these things, it could take an enormous amount of manpower, money, and resources. It's just not possible to do it. So a team of graduate students from Ohio University was put to the task, and how do we tackle this problem, this, this almost impossible problem to tackle? And that is when housing became the clear solution. If you are able to change these houses, if you are able to modify the environment in which the people ex uh, live and conduct their, their daily lives, then you can completely eliminate the contact between the bugs and the people thereby eliminating transmission of the disease. And that is what we're trying to do with the Healthy Homes for Healthy Living program. Healthy Homes for Healthy Living. Healthy Homes for Healthy Living. Um, and the idea is that the, the, the house itself is a tool. It's a tool that you need to learn to use. It's a tool that requires that you have knowledge uh, and you are empowered. So what we have done with this project is conduct a lot of background research to inform us about what people in this area want, what are their aspirations, what are their needs, what are the cultural norms, what do they consider pretty, what do they consider ugly, right? What is the uses that they give to their spaces, to their houses? So it's not your taste or your demands, it's theirs. Exactly. And with a group of architects for, from our partner institution um, in Ecuador, um, then we work with the communities in this participatory design of a house. It's a house that respects the, the, the people, uh, the people's culture, the way of life, you know, the rural way of life, which is 
It's wonderful. It's beautiful. And, and you know, these, these mountains are just fascinating. I wish everybody could go and, and see this because it's, it's fantastic. You can see from these mountains so far away and you see these this sable trees that are, uh, you know, full of life and, and beauty, right? And you have these, these houses that are there and people live there and they like to live there, right? And there is no reason why we should go there and try to put a you know block concrete house in their in their beautiful uh, space right so but the houses need to be uh, able to protect the family against the kissing bug against invasion by this blood sucking insect so what the houses do is what all of the houses do in most of the United States they keep the bugs out right now in the northern hemisphere, because of the weather, you have to seal your house. Otherwise, the heat escapes, and that is dollars right. out the window, right? Right. Uh, and that is what helps us here uh, in, in, in uh, Ohio and in other parts of the United States. But um, so what you need to do is to have screens in windows and doors. Uh, you need to have sealed um, spaces between the walls and the roof, and you need to plaster the walls so that the cracks, there are no cracks where these kissing box can hide. Um, and that process is a process that needs to be done with the community members, right? So that they understand in a process of social facilitation that takes uh, about six months, what their current conditions are and how their current conditions are facilitating the presence of these bugs or making them vulnerable to these bugs. And then you start the construction. And the construction is with the family members, with their own agency, with their own uh, effort, right? With their own investment. I mean, these are people that live in, in chronic severe poverty, but that doesn't mean that they shouldn't be the owners of their own houses on their own spaces. So. The community members then work their tails off and, and really are the, the drivers that keep the quality of their houses, you know, that tie the, the roofing material, that provide labor, that feed the, the workers. And that then gives the family a sense of empowerment, a sense of dignity, a sense of of ownership of their life you know they are the masters of their life now they are not sub uh, the subjects of this poverty trap where they cannot do anything but they are driving this change by themselves so at the end of the process you end up with a house that is is to their taste is beautiful is anti-chagas right is a house that also is anti-seismic keeps away any other type of box prevents you know, diarrheal infections and mm -hmm. provide safety and security and, and changes the whole dynamics of the family. But at the same time, the, the family has this new perspective on life. And that is the real control of Chagas disease. It's when you empower the people to be the, the makers of their own future. I know you have a goal of uh, building another 30 in 2020, uh, 30 homes, another 30 in 2021. Um, can people help you do this? Yes, very much. So we have about half the funds pledged 
to these 60 houses through a uh, uh, combination of the government of Ecuador through a social housing uh, project uh, that they have, plus the local government and with the contributions expected from the families, right? But that is not enough. That is not enough. And we are um, seeking help from uh, donations, small and large, to help um, put together all of the funding that we will need to complete this project. Now, this project is just the beginning. This is a demonstrative project because 60 houses is just a drop in the bucket. But we need to have the proof of concept. And the proof of concept will tell us that this is possible, that the social facilitation can be the, the means to eliminate Chagas from southern Ecuador. And once we have that proof of concept, then that goes to another level. Another level with the funding is not that much of an issue because that is World Bank level funding. That is, you know, large uh, organization funding, government massive investment uh, into this project. These 60 plus homes, uh, if I understand what you're saying, doctor, is, is that uh, they will be a basis of research to come up with data and come up with uh, proof that this helps the issue. That is correct, because it's not only about the construction, right? It's all about the social facilitation and the sustainability and the long-term effect of all these measures. But in order to do it right, we need to learn. So we started with a community center, right? And that proved to be successful. And then we partnered with one family, and that was successful. And we learned a lot about that. Then we partnered with two additional families to build two other houses, and that proved uh, uh, successful. And we learned a lot, and then three houses. And this year, in 2019, we are about to finish the seventh house. And in this seventh house, there is a change. The previous six houses we're built by academics, you know? <laughs> <laughs> this seventh house is built by a contractor whose job is to build houses. He's a person that does this with his crew of, of builders for a living, and that changes the whole equation because now this seventh house is where we have taken all the lessons learned from everything before and put this in a real life application, and it's working. And in two weeks' time, that family is going to have a Chagas-free house. Wonderful. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University seeks to not only educate its students about today's communication industry, but to produce innovative leaders who will shape the future of communication and its methods of delivery in a rapidly changing technological landscape. Scripps provides leadership in communication by preparing students to be effective and responsible communicators in a global society and by advancing the field through creative activity and research. The Scripps College of Communication fosters multicultural awareness within a diverse community 
It strives to create a climate of civility where leadership and innovation are prized and responsibility and accountability are understood. The college values curriculum, research, and creative activity that provide benefits to people regionally, nationally, and globally. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Dean Titsworth, what uh, Dr. Grijalva is, is talking about is, to me, what the term engaged scholarship means. And I know that this is something that you like to research and investigate. Uh, what is engaged scholarship and how does it relate to this program? Sure. You know, in, in academia, we oftentimes talk about research and we think about uh, professors, uh, students, uh, you know, doing research sort of in a, you know, an office, right? But, but it's always, but, some, there's always a hint underneath that it's such remote research that nobody cares. Yeah. And, <laughs> outside and it, of the academic community. Absolutely. Right? I mean, we always try to talk about the social impact of any particular right. research article, but it's it's more hypothetical than not. And What's so different about uh, the work that we're doing um, in Ecuador through Mario's program and with our partner university in Ecuador is that, you know, we know what the problem is. You know, as, as Mario said, it's a problem of poverty. Um, it's one that you can isolate a direct cause and effect relationship between the bugs and the people getting infected. So so we know what the problem is. And and as Mario alluded to, the, the problem is complex because it is a problem of poverty. And what we try to figure out through engaged research, uh, bringing a lot of different perspectives together. So I represent the field of communication, Mario, uh, you know, as a scientist. But, you know, in the summer, we're working side by side in the field. And you bring all those perspectives together to try to understand how do you overcome this this problem of poverty uh, and that's that's engaged research where you have a lot of very committed and and hopefully bright people coming up with a real solution through their research practices uh, and then you know as 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 he alluded to we're we're starting to turn a corner where we know what the solution is and so now the research problem is is how do you scale that solution up so that you can have more homes that are are built and constructed in a way that makes them not only chalk is proof, but importantly, as Mario said, something that will empower the family and the community. And that's the problem I think we're trying to confront right now and why uh, we have communication students and faculty involved in this. Well, I was going to say there's a college of communication and college of communication hooking, hooking up with uh, an institute uh, of, of infectious and tropical diseases seems a bit remote, but not really. Yeah, you wouldn't expect communication students to be working with entomologists and people like that out in the field in southern Ecuador. But it, it's, a, it's very important because, you know, one of the things we know, first of all, is that Chagas disease has a communication element to it. We have to educate people that live in the communities about what the bugs are, the kissing bugs, and how that transmits the disease. And so there's a communication element to that that is important to empowering the community with knowledge. But the phase that we're in right now is that we're trying to raise money surrounding 
this idea that we want to build a certain number of homes over the next two years, that's also a communication problem. And so my students and faculty, when we go into the field, we're trying to sort of tackle both of those at the same time. But this summer, we spent a lot of time uh, collecting uh, video and other multimedia materials that can be used in this campaign to raise money to build more homes. And that's a perfect problem for my students to work on because that's a real world problem that has a definable goal. And we know that the key to success is to have great tools for communication that we can put in front of people so that they understand why it's so important to support this cause of building these homes. You're a dean of a major college of communication. Uh, define for the average listener out there the whole concept of service learning and how that, what that means and how that works in relationship to this project. Sure. I'll actually broaden that term just slightly okay. and call it engaged learning. Engaged but, learning. But the All idea right. is, and, and why I feel so passionate about not, I mean, this project specifically, but also this concept of engaged learning uh, more generally is that students can only learn so much um, within the walls of a classroom. I think that real learning takes place when they take the concepts that they're being trained in and understand how they function in a very realistic setting. And so if, if I'm training students in videography and creating documentary type messages that would be used in this case to raise money, you know, what, what we can do in a classroom has application and value, but when they actually go to Southern Ecuador and have to learn how to do all of this in the field where they have very little access to broadband, they have very little access to um, even cell phone, uh, you know, technology. I mean, it's there, but it's not, you know, it's very limited. They have to learn how to problem solve in creating the products that they're creating. So, you know, they're literally in the field doing the same type of work that we expect them to do, you know, when they're in a laboratory. And that's a very important learning process for students. If they can, if they can do that, then they're going to be able to adapt to almost any situation they find themselves in. And so I view that as being one of the best learning opportunities they can have. Not to mention the fact that they're doing it in a different country uh, with people who, by and large, will be speaking a different language than their own. Uh, all of those things sort of come together in what I just term as a high-impact learning uh, situation. There have been complaints about colleges and universities recently uh, over the past few years that uh, people questioning their value to, to a student. Um, how is this adding value to the experience of the normal student in the college of communication. Well, you know, one of our one of our philosophies is that we want to provide students with experiences that will move them, and I, I mean that in two ways. We want it to touch their heart, and then we also want it to move them to the next level of where they're trying to get to. And I know from working with Mario's team uh, with our students for uh, four years now, pretty directly. Uh, that students are moved both in their heart because uh, they get down there and they experience the good that can be done when a university and, and partners with that university come together to try to solve a problem. So that moves them on an emotional level. But it also teaches them, as I was saying, skills and how to do their art and craft of being great communicators in a setting that challenges them. So, you know, the ability to do 
great documentary work when you're not in the comfortable confines of a university lab, but rather you're in southern Ecuador, which is beautiful. <laughs> I would I would attest to that. You know, that's a very different type of experience. And so them going through that process of learning to problem solve, be creative, um, to really think about the message that they're trying to portray in the products that they're creating, whether it's a short video for social media or a longer video um, that would be used in more of a formal presentation, them going through that process moves them to the next level of skill in their development as communicators. Isn't this sort of a seismic shift, though, in, in, in education? Uh, especially at the college and university level? I, you know, I, I mean, the idea of engaged learning has been around for a long time. But it hasn't been. But, but it hasn't been in practice widely for a long time, right? So, so I do think that, you know, increasingly we in higher education need to start orienting the learning experiences of our students towards these types of high impact learning opportunities like what we experience with the Infectious and Tropical Disease Institute. I think that that is where students are really bringing together what we want them to know and making it what they can do. And that's where the difference is. I mean, you know, in a classroom typical environment, I can teach my students knowledge, but the end result of that should be that they're able to do something. It's, it's things like going down and working in these villages in Ecuador that lets them learn to do things. And that is the payoff that impacts them for the rest of their career. So if a potential employer in an interview process uh, asks the uh, question, what have you done? they've got something to give. It, it's, a, it, it's a narrative and a story that that student can tell that it is going to be unmatched by many others. Dr. Grivhalva, this marriage between a college of communication and a college of medicine and, and an infectious and tropical disease institute may seem strange to others. We've heard an explanation. How has it helped you in what you do as a scientist? Well, it is a powerful combination. It's absolutely powerful because the College of uh, Communication, the Script College, provides all of these expertise, all of these uh, high, uh, high accomplished professors that then guide students that have the energy and the creativity and they, they know what they want. The students now, they are not just floating around, they, they have very specific uh, goals in mind. And these professors then guide them to work in these cross-disciplinary teams. Because it's not only the Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine that is involved and the Scripps College of Communication, but also we have the Patent College of Education, we have the College of Fine Arts, we have the College of Arts and Sciences, we have the College of Engineering, and students from all of these uh, different um, uh, disciplines that would normally be siloed, then are put together and are, are uh, in an environment that allows them to learn from each other. So uh, an artist is looking at how an entomologist is catching bugs while a communicator is looking at how this artist interprets what is going on, right? So mm -hmm. you start doing some triangulations cross-disciplinarily that are just magical. You know? And for me, yeah. it's, it's just so stimulating to see this because 
uh, you see that people start thinking in different ways. And, and, you know, what I hope is that we will have students that are being trained as communicators that all of a sudden say, you know, when I graduate from Ohio University, I want to apply for a job at the Research Center in Ecuador, which is a scientific laboratory, a level three, right, Mario? Level three biohazard laboratory. I want one of my students to apply to that because they go, I want to do videography and communication work for this scientific entity. And that's entirely possible, right? I mean, that's what's exciting about it. But if they don't get a chance, if my students don't ever get a chance to be working alongside the scientists, the entomologists, et cetera, they wouldn't even know that that was a, an opportunity for them. And that's what's exciting about this is the students start to see those interconnections. And that's where the magic happens. In, in a marriage of disciplines. Yes, absolutely. Uh, there is another aspect to this, which is extremely powerful. We partner with Pontifical Catholic University of Ecuador. And they, the same structure that we have here at Ohio University that allows cross-disciplinary participation of students is happening down there as well. Mm -hmm. So we not only have our Ohio University students from all these diverse areas, but also the Ecuadorian students from all these diverse areas. So then the Ecuadorian student that is studying uh, communications is in uh, working together with the uh, student from Ohio University. Right? There's cross-fertilization on a professional as well as cultural level. Absolutely, mm -hmm. absolutely. And then you start seeing that the, the issues at the core might not be that difficult. Yeah. You know, the, the, the problems that people in rural United States are facing are not all that different than the problems that people in rural Ecuador are facing. And maybe there are common grounds to find solutions. And, yeah. and poverty is poverty is poverty. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the big light bulb that I've noticed. And, you know, I mean, obviously, if you're in the villages in Ecuador, it doesn't look like maybe much of what you would normally encounter in the United States. But then when you start digging into the issues, and the idea that poverty is something that afflicts people Everywhere. going across borders, right? Um, and, and then it brings problems with it. Well, if you're gonna solve the problem of Chagas disease in Ecuador, you know, because it's a poverty-related issue related to their homes, I mean, there are similar lessons that can be learned if you're doing that in a community here in, you know, Southern Ohio. And uh, it's, it's not that it's the exact same issue that you're trying to solve, but the underlying aspects of it are very similar, right? And any area that's poverty-ridden or that's right. remote, any place in, yeah. the, in the country or any place right. in the world, right. uh, one could use uh, the, what you've been learning uh, as a result of this. W one last question for you, Doctor, though, is you've done this for over two decades. You've been working with this. How do you keep the passion that is obvious in your voice and in the way you approach this? After two decades, how do you keep that fire burning? I think it's the constant stimulation that I get from the new generations of students that are involved. Because every year that I go and I, I go with this new cohort of participants, both faculty and students, and I see in their eyes how they are understanding for the first time the complexities of this particular scenario. And that light bulb that uh, Scott was mentioning goes off, 
that is really addictive, right? And for me, that is that is extremely rewarding because I know that those are little seeds that are being planted in the next generation, and that uh, that really keeps me going. And I'm fortunate that uh, what uh, uh, you know I'm doing is uh, helping uh, people, is helping uh, move people from this situation of vulnerability into a situation of empowerment. And the, contact, the, the constant feedback, positive feedback from these community initiatives is, is really, really rewarding. So I invite all the listeners to, to just you know, join, join in this, uh, in this wonderful adventure. If you can come to Ecuador, you know, mm-hmm. we're going to have, because I'm sure we're going to be successful on this, we're going to have the first three communities, three small communities in Ecuador that have eliminated the risk of transmission of Chagas disease. And you know what? If we do that, if we are able to accomplish that, maybe in five years, we can have the first county in Ecuador that is uh, free of Chagas disease. And maybe, you know, 10 years from then, we're going to be able to have the first province in Ecuador that is free of Chagas disease. And that type of dreaming, that type of goal is what the young generation needs, is what we need to wake up and, and try to do to better this, this world. You have a website, h3living.org, h3, the numeral three, living.org. And there's also a GoFundMe site, I believe it's under Healthy Homes for Healthy Living. Is that correct? That is correct. And uh, listeners can also find us uh, in uh, Instagram, in Twitter, and in uh, Facebook with the handle Give for Ecuador. Give for Ecuador. Give for Ecuador. And every donation, small or large, is welcome Mm -hmm. because we need all the help that we can get to uh, make this happen. And it's not only the financial aspect, but it's a personal commitment if somebody donates. Absolutely, absolutely. And you will be joining a fight that is uh, noble, a cause, a cause that has impact at so many levels. It will impact the families. Yes, we might be able to reach this goal, but also you would be empowering students to do this engaged learning and to have experiences that are going to shape their lives for, you know, uh, for years to come. Mm-hmm. Gentlemen, thank you so much for giving us a profile of this important new development. Thank you. Thank you very much. Today, we've been talking with Dr. Mario Grijalva, a professor of microbiology, and Dr. Scott Titsworth, dean of the Scripps College of Communication, both of Ohio University. We talked about the fight against the deadly Chagas disease and the concepts of community engagement at universities. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Blueberry, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your podcast outlets. 
If you have questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. Thank you.